MSW Media. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, A.G., Allison Gill. And we're going to begin an eight-part series on the book Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Kloss. Today, we're going to replay the Daily Beans interview with the author as I finish reading the book, and we'll begin with the first chapters next week. Then we'll finish up March 6th with the author answering your questions. So enjoy this intro interview. Grab your copy of Corruptible wherever you get your books today. Honored today to be joined by the author of the new book Corruptible, who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. He's a Washington Post columnist, expert on authoritarianism, and political scientist at University College London. Please welcome Brian Klaas. Brian, hi. Hi, thanks for having me on. Hey, it's really great to talk to you. And, you know, I just want to let everybody know, currently the MSW Book Club is covering Here, Right Matters by Colonel Alexander Vindman. And his wife, Rachel, put me in touch with you about this amazing new book you've written. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write it. I mean, I think I know, but uh, <laughs> what prompted you to write it and, and why the dialogue in it is so important. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've written a few books in the past and most recently I had a book out about Trump's authoritarianism and I wanted to zoom out a bit because one of the things that people always say to me as a political scientist is, you know, why is it that we have all these good and decent people around us? You know, our friends and family are nice people. They act with integrity. They behave, you know, in honorable ways. And yet when we look at the leadership of the country, of businesses, et cetera, we're so often let down. And so what I did is I, I actually didn't put the word Trump in this book. <laughs> I, was, I was sick of it. But what I was trying to figure out was why is it that we end up with so many awful, rotten people so high up the hierarchy? And so what the book tries to do is to figure out, you know, is there a dictatorial personality that draws itself towards power? Is there uh, something about power that changes people? You know, it's a chicken or the egg question. Is it that bad people seek power or that power turns people bad? And then it also looks at things like systems because... Even though one of the things I do in my in my work as a political scientist is I sit down with, you know, I, for this book, for example, I interviewed, I also am a really optimistic person. And I think that there's a lot of ways we can fix this. And so the book sort of sketches out all the problems, but it closes with a lot of different solutions that I, I'm hopeful over the longer run can make a, a better society with better people in power. Yeah, it's sort of a, a nature versus nurture thing, right? Like I just watched Trading Places probably for the thousandth time. And uh, it, it's always a, an interesting question whether the power corrupts absolutely or absolute power. And and I was wondering through your research and, and your interviews, if you found that it's more one or the other. 
Yeah, so I tried to tackle this question a few different ways. Um, the first is I tried to figure out whether a thirst for power is genetic. And there's actually been studies on this. Um, they use twin studies. So they look at identical twins that compare them to fraternal twins trying to isolate genes versus upbringing. And they've identified something that they call a leadership gene, which has a correlation with people ending up in positions of power. And it's actually a pretty strong correlation. But the problem is that it doesn't deal with the fact that there are certain traits in us that make us better at getting power in modern society, right? I mean, of course, they controlled for being a male and being white and so on. But also, you know, being an affable, charismatic person makes you more likely to seek and obtain power in modern society. I mean, introverts have a harder time in job interviews than extroverts. So maybe the gene is actually correlated with other traits that help you get power. So I also, what I did was I I sat down with people who were the offspring of power-hungry abusers. And one of the most memorable experiences in the book was I went to Paris and I sipped wine with this daughter of a cannibalistic dictator, uh, this guy named Jean-Bedel Bokassa, who ruled the Central African Republic in the 1970s and allegedly served human flesh to visiting dignitaries at one point. And, you know, I I sort of expected the daughter to be, you know, just repulsed by him. And she had this sort of weird Stockholm syndrome of thinking, oh, you know, he's this great leader and so on and was proud of her last name. And then at the end of the interview, when I asked her, you know, are you going to angle to go back to the Central African Republic and become the next president? She did that thing that American politicians do where uh, they say, I'm not ruling anything out. So, you know, I, I also looked at this from a variety of other angles and, you know, even in the animal kingdom, right? I mean, I, I looked at uh, heritability of dominance in everything from zebrafish to hyenas. Hit dolphins. What's up with yeah. dolphins? They're evil. <laughs> I do actually, I talk a fair amount about animals in the book because there's a lot we can learn from them, I think, for hierarchy in, in human society. But, you know, like hyenas inherit dominance. Um, so do zebrafish. And with mice, you can actually manipulate their genome and take a dominant mouse and make it super dominant or a submissive mouse and make it super submissive. So I think there's something to this, right? And, and, and at the same time, I think a huge amount depends on the system. So we have people who are more or less power hungry in society. We can take that as a given. I think we mostly agree with that. Some of us don't want power. Some of us are obsessed with it. The system then dictates whether the good people gravitate towards power or not. So one of the studies that I loved in the book was there's a a study where they have people roll a dice 42 times and they say, every time you roll a six, we're going to give you some cash, but you get to report how many sixes you rolled. So you can lie, Right. And when they ran this study in India, one guy was so brazen as to report 42 sixes in a row, which I find amusing. But um, when they did a, they did sort of a follow-up, they found that the people who lied on the dice rolls were also the people who wanted to be bureaucrats, civil servants, because that's where you could extort bribes and, and make money on the side. When they reran the study in Denmark, it was exactly the opposite. In fact, all of the people who lied wanted to go into business and all the people who were honest wanted to go into the civil service. So, you know, what I think you take away from that is that a rotten system attracts rotten people and a good system attracts good people. And that interacts with this sort of fundamental trait some of us do or do not have about whether we want power or not. Hmm. And a question, interesting question that just popped into my head while you were talking there about motive. Right. And I was wondering if you looked at that, because there's I've always wondered if it's power or money, because some people are willing to forfeit money for power because you just sort of inherently get all of this stuff that that comes with it anyway. And did you look into that in in your research? 
Yeah, and it's it's different for different people, and that's why they they sort of self sort. I mean, one of the things that that you have with hierarchies is that people angle for where they want to be. And if you're somebody who has something called the dark triad, which I, I talk about in one of the chapters of the book, which is Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy, being a psychopath. Does any of this sound familiar to us in modern American history? Um, you know, this is this is these are traits that I think make you obsessed with power, but also unfortunately very very good at getting it. That's one of the lessons we've found, and there's massive amounts of evidence that those people are overrepresented in the highest echelons of business and politics. And so, you know, I think they often come together. But if you're obsessed with money but not power, you might gravitate a bit more towards business, being outside of the spotlight. If you're more obsessed with power but not money, you might go towards politics. You know, I think one of the things that's that's really interesting about this, though, is that when you think about these systems... And, and how they sort of sort people, you also have this sort of optimal strategy that's a bit counterintuitive. And the, the, the optimal strategy is actually to end up in second in command or close to the power, but not actually in the spotlight. And we know this from a couple of different ways. One of them is through non-human primate studies. So if you look at baboons, you can basically study how quickly they age in their DNA. There's this process called DNA methylation. And what they, st- what they found is they said, as far down the hierarchy as you go, that's the worst place to be. You don't have any resources. It's really stressful. You, you age really quickly. And then as you go top, as you rise up the, the sort of ladder, you get more and more you know, healthy, less stressful, et cetera, until you hit the very top, the alpha. And the alpha ages really fast because they have a target on their back the whole time. So it's an extremely stressful position to be in. So what they found actually is that the beta is a very good place to be as a baboon. And this is also true in the human world. We have lots of studies about power with business and politics. For for business, CEOs age faster when they're in uh, industries that have undergone a massive crisis. And with a study that looked up 200 years across 17 countries of people who won presidential elections versus the people who lost them and didn't get into power, the people who won died 4.4 years earlier on average than the people who lost. And so, you know, I think one of the lessons is that seek power at your own peril may be the best place to be is just out of the spotlight near the top, but not at the top. Yeah, we've, we, we've called that the power beta, specifically speaking of, uh, let's just say, Senator Lindsey Graham, who was compared, <laughs> was compared, actually, it's funny that you bring up animals because he was compared to there was a fish in the animal kingdom that that hangs on to the big sharks and eats the stuff off the sharks and like sort of eats the like the leftovers and the crumbs and he's like hey and he finds the alpha shark and just sort of goes with him so they were calling him the Lindsay fish and and i i see that a lot where people prefer that position like you said it's a lot less stressful but you seem to get all of the you know it's a coattails situation Yeah. And, you know, I think this is something where there's a lot of variation in the strategies in which people uh, get into power and and how much they're obsessed with that sort of spotlight aspect of it. But I also think, you know, one of the things that I think we need to think more carefully about when you talk about motive, for example, one of the areas in the book that stuck with me in in the research was looking at policing, which is slightly it's different from politics, but it's it's a big political hot button issue right now for good reason in the United States. And what I looked at in in that was I, I tried to look up how do we recruit police? Like, what are the videos? What are the messages that we have when we say you should become a police officer? And I found this amazing video in uh, Doraville, Georgia, population 10,000 just outside of Atlanta, 
where the video starts with the Punisher logo flashing, which, by the way, is a vigilante who punishes and tortures criminals. And then it has these guys in camouflage, army camouflage, in a literal tank, scream into view with death metal music. They get out of the hatch. They throw their smoke grenade. They shoot their guns. They get back into the tank and they, you know, roll off into the sunset. And I, I thought to myself, like... Who who signs up after they see that, right? I mean, if, if I wanted to be a community support officer, or if I was not a super militaristic man, which I'm not, by the way, this is something where I would think, I'm, I'm not going to go to that police department. It's not a good fit for me. And what New Zealand did that I thought was very clever here was they decided to deliberately counteract this. They said, we know that the people who are bigots and bullies and racists and so on are probably going to throw their hat in the ring to be bigots and bullies and racists in uniform because it's really appealing to them. So we're going to make a recruitment video that specifically tries to deter them. And it basically creates a video that's funny. It's all community oriented. It's a series of people who don't look like your stereotype of cops. There are no guns drawn. And at the end, the criminal, the quote unquote criminal that they're chasing turns out to be a border collie that's stolen a purse. And at the end, it flashes, do you do you care enough to be a cop? And, and you think, OK, the difference between the Punisher logo and the do you care enough to be a cop logo is the difference between abusive policing and community-oriented policing. And so when it comes to motive, I think it's not just the people that seek power. It's the systems that say, we want you and how they portray it. And I think we have that, you know, the Republican Party is a really broken mechanism right now in that regard, because you look at Paul Gosar or somebody like him. And the people who want to be Paul Gosar, they're the next generation of Republican candidates. So I think, you know, we have to think at all these different levels, who seeks power, who obtains it, how the system actually, you know, attracts the wrong kind of people and how you can reform it. Yeah. And speaking of how the system either attracting the wrong kind of people or breeding the wrong kind of people, I have some more questions about that, but I have to take a quick break. Will you stay with me? Of course. Thanks, everybody. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. We're talking with the author of Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. Brian. Klaus. And Brian, before the break, you were talking about looking into some police things, what was going on with New Zealand and their, you know, recruitment videos. And I was instantly reminded of I've been for over a decade now, uh, close to two decades, an advocate for survivors of military sexual trauma. And we have been looking into whether the military sort of attracts predators or if they create them? What kind of people want to join the military? Because of the, you know, the, the much higher rate of, of sexual harassment and assault in the military. And, and when we look at the insurrection, for example, so many people who are ex-cops, ex-military, or in these violent extremist groups who dress like they're in the military and, and go and play military or cops, etc. And I was wondering if you had looked at all into I think the same would stand to reason for police as it would for the military. But I was wondering if you looked into the military specifically. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a similar dynamic with the military as there is with the police. And the way I'd say it is that there's plenty of people who join the military or join the police because they want to serve their community. But the key word is disproportionate, right? There's a disproportionate number of people and a disproportionate kind of person who looks at the idea of carrying a gun and the power that is associated with it potentially in a foreign country where you're allowed to shoot people or, you know, in the police where you're allowed to patrol streets of a, a different ethnicity to you and, and, you know, abuse those people where they think this sounds great. 
And so, you know, I talked to the head of the Metropolitan Police in London, the, the person, well, not the head of it, but the person who used to be in charge of recruitment for the Metropolitan Police in London. And she said the same thing about the military as she would about the police, which she said, you know, if you're one of these bad apples, being a bad apple with a uniform and a gun is really attractive. So you have to design a system that counteracts that. Now, at the same time, being in those systems does make you worse. It is true that power corrupts. One of the chapters I have uh, outlines how that actually works, and it, it changes your brain chemistry. There's there's neuroscience evidence about this. There's all sorts of evidence that we can point to of how power changes you. But one of the ways, and this you know, this speaks to the simplicity of some of these interventions that you can avoid some of this behavior is with something as simple as rotation. And this would be true in the military as much as in policing. So what they've found in various places where abusive power often exists is that if you end up with the same sort of either group of people or same partner in the police force, you start to trust that person. And if, the, if both of you exist in a culture of abuse or you know breaking the rules or, God forbid, sexual assault, you end up in a situation where you think, I can get away with this because this person has my back. Now, if you constantly rotate people, you lose that. You start to worry about the new blood that's going to tell on you or is going to expose you or will at least be watching you. And so one of the things that enlightened police forces and enlightened military groups use is they use rotation where they try to make sure that people are constantly being floated around. Not, not because you know there's any sort of distrust necessarily. You don't want to have a culture where you say all soldiers are bad or all cops are bad, but you do want to have a situation where they actually fear bad behavior. And so you know, I think there's a real value to oversight here. Now, when you talk about the January 6th people, these people are play acting and they're play acting in extremely dangerous ways where they want to dress up to the military, like the military, but they don't want any of the oversight or training or any of the formal apparatuses associated with it. So I think those are the most dangerous. I think, you know, at least the military has some systems. If you're joining the Oath Keepers and walking around the Capitol with your, you know, hidden weapon or whatever it is, th those people are basically all the people who probably would have been screened out when the military started to actually, you know, check their background and so on. So you'd hope so anyway. But of course, there are some there are some that get through the cracks and uh, end up in, in positions of, of power within existing structures. Yeah, especially I'm thinking Border Patrol when they like doubled the Classic. amount of Border Patrol and, and yes. lowered the standards yeah. to get in. Now, we've we've addressed like we've talked about the New Zealand police recruitment videos. We've talked about oversight. And, and I was hoping you could give us a little bit more into how we can reform society to ensure that more women and racial minorities end up in position of authority, because that's the sort of representation I think that is required to to serve the community and the communities that they that they work in more effectively and less you know, power hungry wise or greedy wise. Can you talk a little bit about some more solutions that, that we can maybe have a hand in ourselves? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a great question. I have, I have a whole chapter I call the power delusion, which is about how this sort of existing biases in our brains have caused us to make very stupid decisions about modern leadership that systematically bias against women and ethnic minorities. And there's lots and lots of evolutionary psychology and social psychology evidence that points to this. So it's a real problem. There's a couple of things I'd point to. One is a very simple one. And this won't work for presidents, but it will work for a lot of other, you know, more normal systems of power in everyday lives. And that's anonymity when it comes to the ways that we screen and promote people into positions of power. So, you know, I'm a professor over here in the UK. And one of the things that's interesting about the way the system works here is that 
you don't know who you're grading. So in other words, I have absolutely no idea whose paper is in front of me when I start grading them. I, it's completely blind. There's no name. There's just a number. And there's studies that have shown that with CVs, if you submit the same quality of CV, but you just alter the name on the top to be either a white sounding name or a black sounding name or a woman or a man, the differential outcomes are profound. In other words, you know, if you have a male on the top, they get a higher starting salary, more likely to get it called for an interview. The same is, of course, true when you have white candidates versus black candidates. And that's proof that there's biases in us that are not related to merit, right? Because it's quite clear that the same CV. So the only thing that's being changed is the name or the uh, gender of the person being applying for the job. So one way is, you know, try to anonymize these a lot more and it would make it much, much more uh, equitable. The other thing I think that's important is that we can't wait for society to be enlightened enough to actually have clear representation that's demographically proportional at the highest echelons of politics. It's not, it's not going to happen anytime soon. We're not going to have the same number of women and men or the same number of ethnic minorities and, 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 and white people, or at least proportionate numbers, uh, in the next year or two. What we could do in the next year or two is develop something that I propose in the book called a, a citizen assembly that is selected randomly the same way that juries are selected. So there's precedent for this in, in ancient Greece. They use this device called the claritarion, where it randomly selected citizens to make decisions. They actually replace politicians in Greece. What I think they should do instead is we should have basically a jury duty type system of, let's say for the House, 435 randomly selected Americans who then make decisions that are non-binding but are publicly visible and what i what i think is so important about that is it would expose when there was a difference between what the house did and what these 435 randomly selected americans did in terms of their choice because it would expose the effects of lobbying it would expose the effects of you know all sorts of aspects of our politics that are all for the wrong reasons and crucially, because it's random, it would actually be demographically representative. So you'd actually have people making these kinds of decisions that would look like the United States, which is very different from what we actually have in Congress now. That's brilliant. I love it. We have like this shadow House of Representatives. And I'm so glad you brought up anonymization. One of the things that I did when I worked for the federal government, I worked for Department of Veterans Affairs. I was a hiring manager. This goes back to maybe 2012, 2011 was I started requiring that they take names and genders out of the resumes that that I would go through to select who was going to be interviewed. That's wonderful. And then we would interview them on the phone. That's great. We would do phone interviews. And I did that because of inherent biases that I am, I can recognize my privilege, but that I might not be able to see. And, and that others who were interviewed because we had multiple managers in the interview process that others might not be able to see. And I think that anyone who's listening to this, who's a hiring manager can employ this very simple thing to, to help eliminate the biases that we, as much as we want to acknowledge and be better people that, that sometimes are just not visible to, to ourselves. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Finally, before I let you go, different aspects of, of leadership types as well, I think is, is very important. And, you know, having, get, you know, getting my PhD in public health and my MBA, how many leadership courses and seminars have we taken, Brian, really? Hours and hours and hours, hundreds of hours. And I, I, some of the things that really stuck with me are the differences in, in leadership qualities, you know, whether it be servant leadership and transformational leadership versus authoritative or transactional leadership. And, and I think that wondering again, if those are 
learned or, you know, inherited? You know, I think that they're they're system based. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting, I, I the weirdest thing probably I did for the for the book is I um, I interviewed Paul Bremer, uh, who was the the viceroy of Iraq in 2003, and he ran the country basically, and now he is, believe it or not, a ski instructor in Vermont. So I went out and had a ski lesson with him <laughs> uh, before the <laughs> pandemic struck. And one of the things that really stood out to me with him talking to him was that, you know, he, he he's a very polarizing figure for a lot of reasons, and there's plenty of things to criticize about Bremer. But I used him for in the book for a different insight, which is, you know, he served with distinction when he was the ambassador to Malawi and Norway and some other places. He ended up in Iraq, and one of the first things he proposed was shooting looters as a way to send the signal that, you know, there was order and in, 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 in the sort of midst of chaos post-invasion. And what I took away from that was it's context specific, right? I mean, imagine him saying in, in Norway, you know, in Oslo, he's like, oh, we're going to shoot some looters to show a mess, to send a message. It would never happen. Now, you can still be appalled by the idea of shooting looters in Iraq, of course, but the point is that the context dictates a lot of the behavior. And so that's very, very true with, with systems of leadership. And I also think one of the things that I, I talk about in the book that we haven't covered that relevant for this, this uh, question is... What about us, right? You can't be a leader unless you have followers. And so why do we pick awful leaders? You know, this is one of the things that I've grappled with during the Trump era is why is it that nearly half of the country's voters are willing to back Donald Trump and, and, and love him? And so that I also get into some of these these really interesting angles of, of a field called evolutionary psychology, which looks at how biases in our Stone Age brains, which is to say our brains haven't evolved much in the last 50, 50 to 200,000 years, but our lifestyle has massively. The way we have leaders has changed massively. And so what they've found is that these biases continue to this day such that if you ask people to select a leader, but you first say, oh, by the way, it's in times of a crisis, there's a conflict or a famine or a pandemic, that a physically large male figure is more likely to be picked in those times, which is not you know, an accident. It's why we call them strongmen. And when you think about that, that's why Vladimir Putin poses shirtless. It's why, you know, Donald Trump had the speech that was the American carnage speech early on in his presidency, his inauguration speech, because he's trying to send the signal that only I can fix this. It's trying to prime that part in certain brains in American society that respond to strongman leadership. And so that's, you know, a very different type of leadership than what you're talking about, servant leadership or the idea of actually, you know, public service. And so I think what's so important here is that we have to attack this problem from all angles. One thing that I think unifies Americans, probably one of the only things that I think unifies Americans, is people think our leaders suck. They basically think that we have bad people in power. And and I think that that is something that Democrats and Republicans say we could do better on. So how do we fix it? Well, we have to think about every aspect. Who seeks power? Who gets power? How they retain power? The system around power? And why we give power to bad people. And so that's why, you know, in, in the 250 pages, I'm taking this sweeping view of all these different angles to try to figure out the answer to that question. Because I'm on, a, as I said at the beginning, I'm an optimist at heart. I think these are solvable problems. Humans are very smart. We have very good ways of dealing with stupid cognitive biases in our brains. We have very sophisticated structures to, you know, sort of deter abuses but they could be much better. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. It just requires a fundamental rethink 
uh, of how we allocate power in modern society. And I hope people take some of the lessons and, and we can make things a bit better uh, a little bit at a time. Yeah, you're right. I mean, because if you're looking at the leaders and not the followers, you're missing half the equation. And, you know, I've talked to Mary Trump several times about the 71 million people who voted for Trump and, and how if you indict Trump and put him in jail, they don't go away. But, you know, and, and uh, people can be very corruptible. I'm thinking Milgram, you know, Abu Ghraib, mm. stuff like that. So, you know, in people who are followers who follow positions of authority can be very easily corruptible by corrupt leaders. But this is absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I'm very happy to announce that starting on January 9th, the MSW Book Club is going to be going through your book, Corruptible, chapter by chapter, sort of a book report in a series. And that on the final episode that will air, I believe, February 27th, you will come back and join us to answer any questions throughout that seven series process of going through the book about the book. And, and, and our subscribers can do that at patreon.com slash Muller. She wrote, there'll be a form there that they can fill out and, and ask you questions about the book as I go through it. So I'm very excited about that. I recommend everybody grab a copy. It's called Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Kloss, K-L-A-A-S. This is um, a very important book for us to understand because we aren't out of the woods in our democracy and in our own lives. I think we need to understand how leadership and followership can can be transformative or corrupted. So I, I really thank you for your time today. This has been I, I could talk to you for another three hours easy. <laughs> thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. And I'm so excited to be part of the book club. All right, everybody. That's our show this week. We'll start with the first chapters of Corruptible next week. So make sure you order your copy today, wherever you get your books. And until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.